0: I invite you this morning to please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. John, chapter 19. This message comes to us in the midst of our study on the fundamentals of forgiveness. Having seen first the essence of forgiveness, the fact that we are all sinners, and that only God can forgive sin, We continued on and are currently looking at the existence of forgiveness, where we have seen God and Christ's alacrity to forgive, their willingness and eagerness to forgive men's sins, and then we saw the authority of Christ to forgive sins. We asked the question, what gave Jesus, what gives Jesus the right to say your sins are Are forgiven. And we saw that it is because he is the promised Messiah, the very divine Son of God. And therefore, since he is God, and since sin is committed against God, he has every right as God to say to that paralyzed man who was lowered before him, Your sins are forgiven. As God, he had every right to say to that woman who was wiping his feet with her hair, with her tears on his feet and wiping it with her hair. Every right to say to that known sinner, your sins are forgiven because he's God. He had every right to say to that woman caught in the very act and brought before him your sins are forgiven because he is the divine son of God. And he had every right and authority to say your sins are forgiven and does have the authority today to forgive sins. Now that's his authority. Having seen his alacrity and his authority, we come today to consider Christ's Activity to forgive sins. And as we are here in the Gospel of John, we stand at the foot of the cross in chapter 19. And I invite you to look at verse 16. So he handed, that is Pilate, handed him over to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus, therefore, And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew Golgotha. Now, whether or not Jesus was carrying the entire cross is not known. Those are the pictures you've always seen. It's always Jesus carrying this thing that looks like that, that cross, and he's up there carrying... It's far more likely and believed by some to be the only thing that could have been possible that he was carrying a beam, the cross beam, and that's what he was carrying. I know one or two theologians that are convinced that that's all. I don't know. I don't purport to know exactly what it was he was carrying. I am inclined to agree that it was more likely one piece, the beam, that he would have his hands nailed to where... It The Romans being efficient would more likely have had the posts already there and just hoist him up with ropes. It's a lot easier to do it that way. And they were good at it. But he comes carrying his own cross, carrying that implement upon which he would be killed. We see him there then approaching that place called Golgotha. And without ceremony and without emotion, verse 18 simply says, there they crucified Him. They drove the spikes through His wrists into that cross beam. And if it was indeed a complete cross, they would then have had to lift it up and he would plunk down into a hole prepared for it. And they would have secured it there and then nailed his feet as well. Whether they did one or the other or hoisted him up and nailed his feet. But this is what Rome did. And there he was in humiliation as he would have been stripped of his garments. In agony as it would have been excruciatingly painful, there He is, hanging on a cross. We find also here in the Gospel of John that the soldiers, when they had crucified Him, verse 23, took His outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, And also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That was from Psalm 22. Just as Jesus is hanging on the cross, these callous soldiers gamble for His clothes. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. Then also standing there before Him on the cross was His mother. Verse 25 and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household speaking from the cross to his own mother, caring even in his death for his mother, who at this time would have been 47 years old, maybe. Not an old woman at all. But John was then to take her into his own home. Verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill Scripture. He said, I am thirsty. That's from Psalm 69. I am thirsty. The jar full of sour wine, which would have been more like vinegar, which is exactly what Psalm 69 depicts. The jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. Now, this is divine God. You cannot kill God. He gave up his spirit. He gave it up. This is what we see, standing at the foot of the cross. These are some of the sounds that we hear. This is what we hear him say. But what exactly was he doing? What exactly was taking place? We see him there. We weep for the thought that our Savior died this way that he went through such agony and pain, and indeed we should weep. I hope that you never, ever read the account of the death of Jesus and are not moved. If you are indifferent to this, if you're callous to this, if it's too familiar to you, you need to stop and step back and take account of your own heart. We ought to weep in our hearts, ought to break when we read about the death of our Savior. It should move us. And we should consider it often. But what is happening here? What did he mean when he said, it is finished? What was he doing? Just looking here at the cross, you don't know. But you do know, as you listen to what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 26. So I invite you to turn there, if you would please, in your Bibles at this time. Matthew, chapter 26. Many men die every day. Thousands upon thousands were crucified on Roman crosses. They used to line the streets with the crosses, I understand. As a message to the people not to mess with Rome. Lots of people died. What makes Jesus' death any different? What makes the death of this man so important that we remember it to this day 2,000 years later? And that we even celebrate in this ceremony, this institution, this Church ordinance, the broken body and the shed blood. Why do we do this 2,000 years later? What did he do that makes it so important and so special? Well, I tell you here this morning, we are going to consider what is called commonly the very foundation of Christianity that is, the atoning work of Christ on the cross what he was doing. And we're going to see this morning that it is indeed very much involved, integral and even central to our study on forgiveness. As we see from this text, our Lord Jesus telling us what he was doing on the cross. It was not merely a man dying, no! It was the sacrificial death of God for mankind. This is what we find in this account of the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper from the Scriptures. Read with me from verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing He broke it and gave it to His disciples, to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sin. I tell you people that although we will be partaking of both the bread and the cup, the bread which signifies his broken body, the cup signifying his shed blood. We're going to focus primarily on that shed blood today, as it is the emblem of the new covenant. And I want for us to see first from this text how vital this is to our own study as he says the last word in verse 28, the forgiveness of sins. Do you wonder why I began with what we call the essence of forgiveness? All that we studied in those first weeks, and there were quite a few weeks, where we studied exactly what sin is. All that we looked at. In the fact that we are all sinners. We are all law breakers as sin. As we saw in that definition. Sin is lawlessness. The breaking of the law of God. The moral law of God. There is no escaping it. All of us have broken law. The moral law of God. People may say, I am good. Some of you may say here today, I'm a good guy. I'm not a sinner. The fact of the matter is, no one can say that he loves God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his mind, all of the time. No one can say that all of his thoughts and all of his actions and all of his motives are all in accordance with the holy, mighty Father of heaven and earth. That all I do and that every thought is captive to God all the time, all day long. No one can say that. Have you ever coveted? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever been angry with someone? Have you ever talked back to your mother or your father? Have you ever been cheating on a test or cheating on your taxes? We live in a day today that is based upon coveting. You Got to have that new house. Got to have that new car. Got to have that new toy. We're coming up to that season. All the new toys going to be advertised. It's just calculated to elicit covetousness. From boys and girls and big toys for big boys and girls too. It's our life. It's the way things are in our nation. A society. Based upon coveting. And I will remind you that we said we are all guilty. Guilty of committing sin every day. And when you add it all up, it's thousands upon thousands of sins in our lifetime. And God is not simply going to say, oh, never mind. Just like some a uh, uh, judge today. Under normal circumstances, when someone is brought to him with multiple and multiple and multiple and multiple crimes against the state, crimes against people, law-breaking, would not just go, oh, never mind. It's okay. They send them to prison and even to death. All of us are guilty. This is what we labored to see for weeks and weeks. All of us are guilty of sin. And though you may seek to hide, or though you may seek to ignore sin, you know in your heart that you are a sinner. It is made evident to you by your conscience that God put there. We all know we are guilty. Lawbreakers. And we need God's forgiveness. We need God's forgiveness. Now, as I said, we spent weeks establishing that fact. And it was all leading up to this. It was all leading up to the activity of Christ and what He did to accomplish forgiveness for you because we need the forgiveness of god and because jesus is god what did he actually do what did the divine son of god who had the authority to forgive sins what did he do how did he do it how did he actually and really forgive Sins. What did he do to actually accomplish forgiveness of sins? I ask you to look at the text again and see what he says when he says in verse 28, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out. And so as we have looked at the sin or the sins, look now at the shedding of His blood. The shedding of the blood of Christ, as He Himself says, that His blood shall be poured out, poured out for many. It refers to what actually took place on the cross. What we saw there. In the Gospel of John, and chapter 19, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, it was a real man who had real blood coursing through his veins, who was then brutally abused, brutally beaten, It really happened. His was a bloody death. Even prior to the cross, we speak of the scourging and the beating that took place, all causing blood. His back would have been ripped to shreds by the scourging. His nose would have been bleeding from the beating. And even as we saw, he would have had that crown of thorns on his head, which would have caused blood all around his face. His was a bloody death. And then, of course, those spikes driven into his wrists, likely hitting the veins and the arteries in his hands or in his wrists, Not only causing agony and pain, but causing bleeding profusely. Likewise in his ankles, his feet. Our Savior's death was a bloody death. And so we even sang unashamedly, there is power in the blood. Because he says himself in this text that his blood was poured out. His blood was shed. It was indeed a bloody death. John 19 went on also to say that even after he was dead, they came up to him and wanting to make sure he was dead, pierced his side with a spear, and blood and water poured out. More blood shed by our Lord on the cross. I know we talk about this. Maybe we should talk about it even more often. But don't ever let it lose its significance. That Jesus' death was violent, agonizing, And very bloody. Broken body. But his shed blood. And it is here in Matthew's gospel. That he tells us. That he shed his blood. First of all the pouring out of his blood. But then notice too. That he says it was the emblem. Of the New Testament. As he says my blood. Of the covenant. That's why we call. The the shed blood the emblem of of the New Covenant, or the symbol of the New Covenant. Believe it or not, this terminology goes way back. Look back in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Genesis, Exodus. All the way back to Exodus chapter 24. And here we see, picking up in verse 7, of Exodus 24 this is about Moses of course and what they would do there in the sacrificial system look what he says then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people and they said all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. All the way back, beginning with the sacrificial system, this terminology, speaking of the blood of the covenant Was being used. So now, when we turn forward to Matthew chapter 26, when our Lord says, This is my blood of the covenant, he is showing the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system as it is fulfilled in Christ in the new covenant. And thus, the blood is is the emblem or the symbol of the new covenant. The covenant inaugurated, established by Christ in His death. Shedding His blood, that blood which becomes the emblem of the new covenant in Him. Now before we move on, I want to point something else out from this text which we could point out every time we have the Lord's Supper, but I think it is particularly warranted today. We have had this past week in our nation a visitor from Rome, more specifically from the Vatican. And he has come and people have bowed before him. And worshipped him, called him your holiness. And yet I tell you today that this man is a heretic. That he is lost and he is leading millions astray with his false teaching. And part of his false teaching centers around this. You see, part of his false teaching comes from what Rome teaches happens at every Mass they celebrate. Because in Rome, when they celebrate a quote-unquote Mass, and they do it not just on Sunday, but every day, part of that ceremony, part of their tradition, part of their False teaching is that the bread that they have, which is a little wafer, becomes the literal, actual body of Jesus. Not a symbol, not a representation, but it is the body of Christ. And the wine or the cup, they say, actually is, becomes his literal, actual blood. It is the blood of Jesus. And that's why when they hold up that little wafer, they call it a Eucharist. They say the body of Christ because they believe it is. And when they put it on the lip or the tongue, I should say, of someone who comes for that communion, they are to say the body of Christ, Because they are inculcating in their minds that somehow or other, this is actually the body of Jesus. That's what they're doing. Making little kids believe this is actually Jesus. This is actually Jesus. I remember when I was a kid and I would go to these heretical ceremonies. I would sit there and And after they were done, you see, they would turn around and they'd put everything in this little chalice type little container in the front. And it was rounded and it had a crown on the top and it had like clothing on it, like a robe on it. And I thought, that's where Jesus lives. That's his house. It's just heresy, just heresy. Here we have the Lord's Supper. And Jesus says, Take this bread and eat. It is my body. Where was his body? And then he says, drink this cup. It is my blood. Where was his blood? Now, I say to you without any doubt or question that Jesus was sitting right there in front of those disciples. Flesh and blood. His body was there. His blood was coursing through his veins. Obviously, the bread on the table and the wine in the cup was not his body and was not his blood. It was a representation, a symbol, of what was about to take place in just a few hours. That his body would be broken and his blood would be shed. And that's why in a parallel text he even says, do this in remembrance of me. It is a reminder that he had a real body that was really broken. We are not remembering a fable. We are not remembering just a fairy tale. We are remembering a real man who really existed. And that's why we hold the bread and we can feel it. See it. Touch it. Taste it. Because it's real. And every bit as real as this bread is real. We are reminded that Jesus' body was real. Same with the cup. We can see it. Smell it. Taste it. Because it's real. And it reminds us that our Savior is real. That he really came. That he really lived among men. And that his body was really broken. And his blood was really shed. It is A symbol. And it is a reminder. It does not become anything other than bread. It does not become anything other than the cup. It is a symbol. I like what Spurgeon said. We value the symbol. But to confound it with the thing symbolized would draw us into the idolatrous worship of bread. You understand what he's saying? We value the symbol. We have long been announcing the Lord's Supper and preparing our hearts to partake of it because we value what it represents. But it does not become what it represents. It does not become Jesus. Otherwise, we would be worshiping bread. And we do not worship bread. We do not worship a man. We worship God. And this represents the God-man Jesus. And so just to make sure that we understand. But I must get to the heart of our study here today. And the heart of our series As we see right from the text, that he says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Everything has been leading up to this. How are your sins forgiven? Jesus had the authority to forgive sins, but he did not just say, Everyone's sins are forgiven. He had to pay for your sins. He had to pay the debt of your sins. And that is what happened on the cross with his shed blood. He was not just dying on a cross. He was a sacrifice to God that your sins would be forgiven. That your sins would be, as we sometimes say, atoned for, paid for. The word forgiveness in the Greek is to be pardoned, freed from the imprisonment of sin. It is the remission of the penalty of our sins. That's why sometimes it's called He died for the remission of sins. Some of your Bibles may have it translated remission of sins. But it is to be forgiven as your sin is obliterated. Forgiveness of your sins because He shed His blood. That's what He's saying. Look, I shed my blood, poured out, for many, that your sins would be forgiven. That's what He did on the cross. Not just a criminal dying. Not even just a good man dying. It was God dying to pay your sin debt in order that your sins would be forgiven. This is the activity of Jesus to forgive sins, His dying on the cross, His shedding of His blood, His sacrificial death on the cross. Here is what He did. Here is the activity to accomplish forgiveness. Now, This also goes back to the sacrificial system. If you would now turn back to Leviticus, all the way back to Leviticus. This is now Genesis. We looked at Exodus. Here's Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 17. And look down to verse 10. And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among the people, from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. All the way back in the Jewish sacrificial system was the concept of why the blood was being shed to atone for sins. Now, all the way forward, all the way ahead in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to pick this up in verse 18. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Isn't that what we just read? Even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. We read that in Exodus. Saying this is, is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And then in the same way, He sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is No forgiveness. Now, look down to verse 24. For Christ did not come to enter a holy place made with hands a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that He would offer Himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And this is what he did. Shedding His blood on the cross was a sacrifice to God, not in a tabernacle made by hands, but in heaven itself, before God Himself, with the blood of His Son Himself, offered as a sacrifice for what? The atonement of your sin, that it would put away sin. The forgiveness of sin. That's what we have been talking about for months. How is it that Christ can forgive your sins? Because He is God. How does He forgive your sins? By the sacrifice of Himself to God as He shed His blood on your behalf. That's the activity of Christ upon the cross. Now back to chapter 26 of Matthew, Matthew 26. I'm just going to summarize what Jesus says here and point out one more thing. Verse 28, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So he is saying, I am going to the cross. He hasn't gone yet. This is before the cross, the last supper. I'm going to the cross. I am going to shed my blood. And it is so that many may be forgiven. And I simply want to point this out. I can't cover all the ground here today. But I do want to point out that he does not say, I'm giving my blood so that everyone in the world will be saved. Or that everyone's sins would be forgiven. It is for the Sacrifice of the sins of many, many. Is it you? Is it for you? Not everyone goes to heaven. But we preach the sacrifice of Christ on the cross to tell you today, your sin may be forgiven your sin may be put away by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You may know the peace of sins forgiven through Christ. Come to Him, all who labor and are heavy laden, and in Him you will find rest because sins are forgiven. Now, Turn over a page or two The chapter 27. And this is where I would close for today. We will see more about the work or the activity of Christ to forgive sins in the coming weeks. I can't deal with it all today. But as we close, I want you to see with me one more time Jesus on the cross. It's 2,000 years ago, just outside of Jerusalem, sometime around the sixth hour, which would be noon. An unusual darkness has settled in over the complete area, a felt darkness. So many of the depictions of the crucifixion of Jesus, be it in plays or pageants or movies or whatever, failed to recognize the fact that it was dark. And they came to the place called Golgotha. This is verse 33. They gave Him wine to drink mixed with gall. Tasting it, He was unwilling to drink. And there they crucified Him, divided His garments, And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him. So in the midst of the darkness, you can make out this cross. And a man upon this cross, whose name is Jesus. You can hear the scribes and the Pharisees as it describes in this text. Mocking Him. You can hear the thieves also crucified. One on His left and one on His right. Mocking Him as well. You hear those Pharisees? You think you're the Son of God. Come down from that cross. And we will worship you. If He came down from the cross, we would not have Atonement for our sins. So the fact that he stayed on the cross was more of an indication that he was divine God than if he had come down from the cross because he was doing exactly what the Old Testament prophesied that he would do crushing the head of the serpent, atoning for the sins of his people. That's what he did on the cross. We can barely make out his silhouette in the darkness. We can hear his mother and some of the other women, and perhaps some of the disciples off in the distance weeping. But it is to Christ that we look. Do you see him? Do you see him on the cross? Jesus, in humiliation, in agony. His blood pouring from his face, dripping from his hands and from his feet. And then in verse 46, he cries out, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you hear him cry? The fact that God forsook him at that point was because he was pouring out the wrath that you deserved for your sin upon Jesus. And then he cries out with a loud voice in verse 50 and yields up his spirit. He dies there upon the cross. And what I want you to remember as you see him in your mind's eye, hanging upon that cross, in agony, in pain, shedding his blood. Don't ever forget he was there for you. He was shedding his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. One day I'll preach on this text. It was read. that The scribes and the Pharisees said. He saved others. He can't save himself. Do you know. How right they were. He was dying to save others. You. He could not save himself. Because he didn't need. To be saved. We do. And that's why he was there. This is what. We remember today his broken body and his shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray.